Good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's, whether you're with us in person or online. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. Amen. I'm a fan of the classic old rom-com, Legally Blonde. Maybe some of you have seen it. And in it, there is a scene set in a law class at Harvard, where Professor Stromwell is out to intimidate her students on the first day of class. She asks the question, the law is reason free from passion. Does anyone know who spoke those immortal words? Well, one of the students, David, thinks he knows, and he replies very confidently, Aristotle. The professor asks him if he's sure of his response. Yes, David replies. She then asks if he would stake his life on it. I think so, he replies less confidently. And finally, she asks if he would stake a fellow student's life on his response. I don't know, he says, as the stakes get higher and his original certainty fades. I would recommend knowing before speaking is her parting advice to him before continuing the lecture. Last week, we met a character who was entirely sure and confident in his message. John the Baptist has known that his relative Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One, sent by God to save Israel, literally since John was in his mother's womb. Jenny preached on John's fiery message of repentance last week. One is who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is so confident and so sure here is someone, it seems, who has never doubted the truth of what he says. His faith seems entirely unshakable. But then fast forward to Matthew chapter 11, to our reading from today. Jesus is well into his ministry and has been doing all kinds of miracles, including raising the dead. But he's no, showed no sign yet of baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. No sign of any winnowing forks and unquenchable fire. The Messiah that John prophesied about was supposed to throw out Roman oppression, free the captives, and bring Israel back to its glory days. And so far, there's no sign of any of that happening. And meanwhile, John, in his courage and unswerving loyalty to the truth, has been thrown into prison for speaking truth to power. He's dared to tell Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, that it's not a good idea to divorce his wife, seduce his sister-in-law, and then marry her. Speaking truth to power has consequences, and John, in our reading this morning, is sitting in a prison in the fortress of Machaerus on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, relying on his disciples to bring word from the outside world and wondering what his fate is going to be. And sitting in a dark prison, cut off from the world, can be fertile ground for doubt to grow. And it's easy to imagine that John is beginning to doubt his own message, 
After all, freedom for the prisoners is something that Jesus preached. He promised to bring in his very first sermon. And here John is, Jesus' earliest and most vehement supporter, sitting in chains in a filthy dungeon with no sign of revolution or unquenchable fire in sight. And so John sends this word. Are you really the one who is to come, Jesus? Or are to we, we to wait for another? Did I get it wrong? The message that he would have originally staked his life on was now in doubt. In June 2020, when the pandemic was still new and everything felt broken and off-kilter and strange, well-known author Beth Moore posted a series of tweets on, on Twitter, and this is also, for those who aren't on Twitter, like myself, this is also known as a thread. And she posted this after reading this particular story of John the Baptist. Here's a bit of what she said. This narrative moves me each time I read it. Jesus doing all those messianic wonders out there. Meanwhile, John's in prison, and in no time he will lose his life. John's been faithful, prepared the way, pointed to Jesus alone, jailed over his integrity. Hey, Jesus, remember me? A meanwhile can be a very meanwhile. If I could entitle this thread, Beth continues, it would be when Jesus breaks our hearts, when we love him so much, when we've known him so well, when we've served him, when we're sure of what he can do and have full expectation he will, and he doesn't. It only pours salt on the wound when we hear all he is doing for others. I don't believe those in deep relationship with him ever experience deeper hurt. This is the crisis of faith that beats all others. This is the crisis of faith that beats all others. We're in the third week of Advent, that season of preparation leading up to Christmas, the season in which the church worldwide allows herself to pause and truly feel the weight of the brokenness of the world, the ache in our hearts for all to be made right, the longing for the coming of a savior. In Advent, we occupy simultaneously not only the time of silence after the last prophet had spoken in Israel and the world was holding its breath, waiting for the coming of a Messiah, but we also occupy our own time where we each await Jesus coming again and the end of loss and heartache and death. And John the Baptist is the quintessential Advent spokesperson because he has seen the coming of the Messiah, but he still waits in chains in prison for the fulfillment of the prophecy and for all to be made well. And together with John, we sit in this waiting time, longing for the Messiah to come and restore all things, to bring healing to the loved one who is sick or dying, to mend the relationship that has been on the rocks for so long despite all efforts, to give a child to the woman who has been hoping and praying to give a cancer-free diagnosis, to bring peace in the homeland, to give a clear sign of God's presence and God's love for us. It seems to happen for others. We hear of miracle cures, the restored relationships, the positive pregnancy test. We try to rejoice with others even while our own hearts are breaking, and we cry, what about me? Jesus, why don't you remember me? 
why don't you show up for me? And we find ourselves in the place of John, in Advent, in this crisis of faith that beats all others, wondering if we've placed our faith in the wrong person. Jesus hears John's message, his question, was I wrong to proclaim you? Are you really the one? And Jesus' response, which at first seems to be rubbing salt in the wound, actually holds so much hope and compassion and grace, not only for John, but for everyone who has ever found themselves in this place of doubt. This is what Jesus says. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with the skin disease are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And then after saying this, Jesus immediately turns around and starts praising John to the crowds. And what do we make of this? How is this a helpful response? Here's how. Jesus, in listing off these miracles for John, isn't just describing everything he's done in the past few chapters in Matthew and what he's done for others and not for John. He's also quoting scripture. He's referencing the prophet Isaiah's predictions about the coming Messiah, and he's showing John that despite the fact that Jesus hasn't come with brimstone and unquenchable fire, despite the fact that Jesus hasn't come in exactly the way John expected him to, doesn't mean that John was wrong. It just means he couldn't see the whole picture. He couldn't see that Jesus was saving Israel, but that his method of doing so was so much larger than John realized, because it encompassed salvation not just for Israel, but the entire world. John's hope for Jesus' mission wasn't too big, but too small. Jesus would bring salvation to John, but not in the way he expected. And Jesus didn't condemn John for questioning and doubting. And I love this, because I think there's so much grace and hope for us in this story. Jesus heard his question. He heard his moment of doubt and his crisis of faith. And he turned around and he started praising him highly to the crowd. No condemnation. Because Jesus, too, would have a moment of desolation. A moment where, in the depth of spiritual and physical pain, he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, too, would experience the ache. And if John the Baptist, and if Jesus himself experienced these moments, we know that God will not be less gracious to us in our own. John the Baptist never escaped from that prison. He died shortly after this, beheaded by a despot. And we're left with the question, why didn't Jesus rescue him? And the answer is that he did. The Apostle Paul, shortly before his own beheading, and knowing that the end was near, knowing that his time had come, wrote this in a letter to his friend Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord will rescue me. Paul didn't think that he was going to have a miraculous rescue from prison. That's not what he meant. His vision was greater. He saw that despite what happened to him here on earth, 
despite all the heartache and the pain and the sorrow, nothing could separate him from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And he knew that in the end, he would be safe in God's kingdom, where all pain and sorrow would be no more. Here's Beth Moore again. Listen carefully. We who are in Jesus will be delivered safely to his kingdom. We will get there. Behold God and realize with slack-jawed awe that nothing the devil could ever do, nothing evil could ever render, or wicked humans could ever conceive, could keep us from making it home. And we will wonder why we dreaded it as much as we did. Jesus loves you. He's not forgotten you. In doling out miracles to others, he has not disesteemed your need. We do not know why things happen the way they do, but we do know this. The glory to come will wildly exceed the pain. He hasn't forgotten you. Despite what it may feel in our Advent seasons of waiting and aching, he loves you. And someday, as the old song that we're about to sing proclaims, the powers of hell will vanish as the darkness clears away. And we will cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. And as the 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich proclaimed, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Beloved church, in this Advent season of waiting, of hoping, of longing, and of aching, the last message that I want to leave with you as I prepare to leave this church is this. Hold on to faith. Hold on to Jesus, because he is holding on to you, and he will save you for his heavenly kingdom. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.